Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Quad Shot, where we help you down and digest the day's most pertinent cancer news. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Quad Shot News Podcast, also known as the Quadcast, and we have a real treat for you today. We are honored to have Jacob Scott and Javier Torres Roca on the call with us today discussing some of the work that they've been doing with RSI, or the Radiation Sensitivity Index. We're excited to learn a little bit about them and uh, about the work that they've been doing. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks. Thanks. It's fun to uh, talk with you guys. Yeah, we're very excited. You know, we we have a passion of highlighting what we consider to be important research, um, groundbreaking research, and things that could potentially shape the future for our field and for our patients. And so we certainly think that some of the work that you're doing falls into that category. And so we're excited to learn more about that. So if one of you wanted to, just uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are, and then we can get into um, what you've been doing. Go ahead, Javier. Well, I'm uh, Javier Torres Roca. I'm a radiation oncologist at uh, Moffitt uh, Cancer Center, and I've been, you know, uh, interested in uh, genomics uh, for approximately 20 years. Is an interest that started uh, when I was a postdoc at um, at Stanford with uh, Len Hersenberg and. Uh, Eric Weissman, and it's something that I carried into uh, my career as a radiation oncologist. And um, I think uh, it is critical that, you know, we sort of develop genomic approaches to the practice of radiation oncology. And I, you know, and I think that, you know, that's something that I always have fun, you know, discussing. And I'm uh, Jake Scott. I'm a radiation oncologist and a physician scientist here at Cleveland Clinic. I take care of folks with sarcoma one day a week and run a lab the other other four days. Um, the my, my origin story, the, the most important part of my origin story occurs on week two of my residency, which uh, which was at Moffitt Cancer Center with Javier. On the second week of my residency, Javier published the two key RSI papers, and I took a vacation with my young family. And I read, I took the red journal with me, put it in my bag. I was all excited to do some reading. And I read his back-to-back papers that described this radiation sensitivity index. And I got all excited that, uh, you know, personalized radiation therapy was was here and it was real. This was in 2009. And uh, I came back to residency and it was not. And I think Javier and I have been working pretty much ever since then to make this reality. So it's pretty exciting to be here to talk to you and, and everybody today about our, our newest work. Well, that's exciting. And, and certainly, you know, like, like so many things, um, there, there's certainly a, quite a backstory behind um, what, you know, the general public sees in terms of the time and the energy and the effort that I know go into some of the work that you've been doing. And that just highlights it right there. Um, well, tell us a little bit about um, sort of about RSI, uh, Radiation Sensitivity Index. What is it? What does it mean? And, and kind of maybe Dr. Torres Roca, maybe you could tell us how did you get started uh, thinking along this line? Well, so when I uh, sort of started um, my career at Moffitt, um, you know, quite a few years ago, um, I, w- I, I sort of was sort of figuring out what I was going to focus, you know, my career in. And I had made a decision uh, that it was going to be in, in genomics. And I had been, you know, at the time, uh, the microarray, you know, uh, had become commercially available. Uh, there was no sequencing yet, but I thought that this was a, a critically important thing 
that we needed to integrate into radiation. And I, and I thought long and hard, and you know, and I always tell people that the first six months of, of my faculty career, I spent reading. Um, and so I was reading every single paper that had been written in the last 30 years about radiation sensitivity and how we could sort of integrate uh, genomics in, 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 into, uh, into all of this. And so I began discussing with people and so forth, and, and it, it dawned on me that really what we needed to uh, uh, sort of focus was develop a, a genomic model that we could use diagnostically, you know, when patients would show up um, uh, for a consultation, right? Uh, and so that's uh, sort of uh, the original uh, thought process. I started thinking about how you're going to use this in the clinic, and then I try to work back. Uh, but part of the problem was that at the time, everybody thought that genomic models had to be developed from uh, from patients, and that genomic models needed to be trained on outcomes. So that was basically the the fundamental thrust that it that uh, that existed at the time, uh, where where basically people were saying, well, we're, we need to use these genomic models and all these um, new uh, technologies to better understand the prognosis of patients, and that's you know how you know Oncotype DX you know was sort of developed, but it uh, but it struck me that that was not really what we needed for radiation. Um, I, I thought that what we needed for radiation was to understand better the response of radiation uh, of patients, and so we needed to really focus on developing something, you know, uh, re specific for radiotherapy. And so what I did, uh, which was very unpopular at the time uh, with the study section, was that I actually developed a model of radiosensitivity using the survival fraction uh, to gray uh, in cell lines. And actually, the reason I did it in cell lines was because that I, I just didn't have, you know, any funding to do this in a large scale in patients. Um, but also, the second reason I, I, I did it in cell lines was that that was the only way in which I could isolate the phenotype of radiosensitivity. And so that's essentially how the whole background of the story started. We sort of, you know, had a bunch of cell lines that we had measured um, SF2 uh, for, uh, for all of them. And then we had baseline genomic profiling, which, require, which was required for the development of models. And that really then uh, was where we got started. That's fascinating. Um, so Jake, you know, we, we at the Quad Shot, we highlighted a, a JTO paper that you all published, um, you know, we, we highlighted it on January 8th, uh, so you published it in the past year. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and kind of what the implications of that paper are maybe moving forward and how should we interpret that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a paper, of the title of it's Personalizing Radiotherapy Prescription Dose Using Genomic Markers of Radiosensitivity and Normal Tissue Toxicity in non-small cell lung cancer. And really, you know, RSI is, as you've described, or Javier described, is, a, is a, a genomic test that you can run on a tumor, which gives you a score, which correlates with, with SF2. And, uh, and then if, I think a lot of the listeners will be familiar with the concept of GARD, which is the genomic adjusted radiation dose. And, and what that is, is it's a mathematical model based on the stuff we all know in, in our Paul Bible that takes that RSI, that that measure of sensitivity and transforms it using prescription dose into an, a biological effect. So what, what GARD is, is, is it, it's how much effect does your individual patient have from a given dose. And so what that gives you is, is something that's more precise when it comes to 
an individual level effect. You know, 50 gray isn't necessarily 50 gray from one patient to the next, as we all know in our clinical uh, lives. And so in this paper, the sort of, so that, that, that concept of guard we came up with a few years ago uh, in a paper we published in I think, 2016. And, and this paper in, in Journal of Thoracic Oncology is really the next logical step forward as, as we thought. And what we did in this one that was new was try to think about, so let, let's say for example, for, uh, for two different patients you have, let, let's say you actually were able to figure out what the optimal dose needed was for, for those individual patients. And let's say, let's say they have lung cancer. And we all know that uh, in non-small cell lung cancer, at least post-op, you can give anywhere from like 50 to 70. And in intact stage three disease, you know, we've tested 70, 60 and 74 recently in RTOG0617. And so there's, there's a range of doses that these patients get. So the, the question I, I was asking was, well, you know, what if you have a patient who's got a really radio-resistant tumor and you only give them 60, you know, you miss out. Maybe that's not enough to cure that patient. But there's another side of that same coin, which is what if you have a really sensitive patient and you give them 70 or 74 and they didn't need it? Is there a way to quantify the damage we're doing, to quantify the extra dose that they got and think about what harm that might do in the situation where you, you really do think that you know the optimal dose? And so that's sort of the, the underlying question for this paper. And what was nice about it was we had a couple things. We had the results of RTO Geo 617, which has everybody scratching their heads a little bit, right? If you, for those who don't remember offhand, they tested 60 gray versus 74 gray in patients with non-small cell lung cancer with chemo, of course. And, and it came out that 74 was worse. And I think it really set the standard for 60 gray being um, standard of care now. Um, but there's still lots of folks out there who give more because this idea that dose escalation is is beneficial. And there's some folks that just almost disbelieve the results. And then and there's also a large group of folks that think that what happened was that the 74 gray patients were getting were getting disproportionately hurt and, and not helped. So maybe maybe the increased cure rates of that 14 extra gray were offset by toxicity. And so with that sort of question in mind and this idea that a genomic classifier could help you understand where patients sit in this sort of continuum of sensitivity, we started this analysis. And so the first thing we did was, as we had done in many previous papers, we made a, we, we sort of reverse engineered to find an optimal dose. Now, how, how we did that is essentially doing sort of Kaplan-Meier statistics backwards. And so what you do is you sort of select you iteratively select cut points of dose, or in this case of guard, and you ask what level of guard best splits the groups. So at what cut point, at what threshold level of guard do you have the best differences in your Kaplan-Meier statistics? And so, uh, and, and this is a, a, um, a method that Javier and his team and, and me have used uh, many times before, um, but mostly because uh, as a continuous variable, it has not previously been statistically sound because we haven't had enough patients until recently, and we'll talk about that near the end. But so in this paper, the first thing you do is we took a cohort of um, a number of patients with non-small cell lung cancer who were treated at Moffitt Cancer Center, um, and we went through their actual dosing and their actual radiation treatment plans, and we found that a guard in this case of something around 30 was able to optimally split the groups. Um, and so once you have that, you now have kind of 
what we like in radiation oncology, which is a target dose. But now we can go back and look at all those patients and say, okay, how many of them got close to that 30? So now remember, you can get a guard of, of 30 by lots of different ways. You can, be a, you can be a sensitive patient and have gotten a very low dose of radiation and gotten that guard of 30, or you could have been a resistant patient and gotten a very high dose and still had 30. So, you know, you, you could have get, gotten 50 gray or 70 gray and maybe still come upon this. But this sort of begs the question, how many of these patients were treated near optimally? And this is the first sort of big result in this paper. And the answer is not many. Something like 25% only of patients were treated within 10% of what we considered to be this optimal dose. That That's kind of that, crazy. Yeah, it is. It was a shocking. That was the very first result. And we just thought, oh, boy. Um, and so I want to jump in here. And I, I want to say it is kind of crazy. But it is actually. But if you really think about it, it should be our hypothesis. Mm. If we really, If we really think that all tumors are different and if anything that genomics has shown is that tumors are highly heterogeneous how can we think that we have optimized the treatment of our patients by giving them all the same physical dose and so there is no way that that can be optimal uh, for each individual patient and so in this paper what we're basically doing is demonstrating for the first time an actual quantification is an attempt of a quantification of how often are we right? And the answer is most of the time we're not. And so basically the fundamental message of this, of this paper in JTO is that there is an enormous opportunity to optimize patients at an individual level with genomic That's right. So if, if you're wrong 75% of the time, that means that 75% of the time you can do better with just what we have in front of us right now. You don't need any crazy new machine. You don't need any crazy new particle or a new drug. We just need to get better at what we do in radiation. And, and you know, the idea that we've optimized radiation, uh, we, we think we have shown now pretty clearly is, is not, the opportunity still exists. Yeah, I, I feel like the example too with 0617 was such a great way for a lot of clinical radiation oncologists to kind of get the picture also you know if you do this in cell lines it's one thing but when you have a trial like that that makes people really wonder how did this happen because obviously we know that dose does matter for lung cancer you mean you know look at sbrt data but something happened when you escalate dose for locally advanced cancer that was causing detrimental effects and it's it's just such a good way of look of putting this in perspective. Uh, what you guys have been Absolutely. doing in the lab. You know, there's another another interesting story about um, lung cancer. So you you know, Pete, Peter Mack is this amazing cancer center in Melbourne, Australia, where um, David Ball and a number of uh, luminaries in our field, like Shankar Shiva and others, work. They published last year a, a long term series of pa of three B patients with three B stage three B lung cancer, who were treated palliatively with twenty and five, who were cured. Um, and, you know, I think that just sort of hammers home this idea that, and then, and of course, we all know that we have patients we treat to 74 gray who fail locally. And, you know, I think both of those pieces of information tell us, tell us that there's wide heterogeneity here, right? There's some patients who only need 20 and some patients who need more than 75, but just, and, but the, the crazy thing is we have to be give them all 60 or, or whatever it is, right? Because we're, because we're blind to it. Mm. 
And I think if you really look at the 0617 uh, story, right? So we those escalated uniformly to 74 gray, uh, but you still had like 40% uh, local failure rate uh, in the patients that were treated to the 74 gray. So meaning that there's still a clear subset of patients that need higher doses in order to just eliminate all the cancer. Um, and yet, you know, you have, you know, worse overall survival because then you're also, you know, increasing uh, uh, those to normal tissue. So, so there is this situation where you're uniformly, you know, um, you know, uh, increasing the dose because the fundamental, and I always go back to the original fundamental hypothesis that drives this idea of uniform dose escalation is basically based on the idea that everybody, every single tumor has the same opportunity to benefit from radiotherapy. And that, you know, radiotherapy toxicity is a probabilistic effect that is purely related to chance, right? And so then the more dose you give, the more likelihood that you'll have tumor control based on the, you know, classic um, TCP curves. And clearly that's not correct. Clearly not everybody has the same likelihood of benefit uh, uh, from radiotherapy. Um, and I think that this analysis that Jake and I did is sort of, a, you know, uh, uh, is that first quantification of, of that. And I think it's, uh, it's fascinating because the, the fundamental idea is that we use, you know, standard doses and standard DVHs, you know, for toxicity that are based on population. Um, and really, we're missing out a lot in the benefit and the clinical benefit of radiotherapy by just focusing on populational-based metrics, and we really need to go into the individual patients in order to move our field forward. So that's, um, you know, you use the word um, fascinating, and, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about all of the current and uh, potential future implications of this, I and mean, I could certainly imagine a day where we're all sitting around saying, can you imagine or can you believe that we used to give the same dose to every patient with lung cancer? You know, and that's just this, you know, preposterous idea. And so I think the the implications of this are, are wide reaching. And I would imagine even beyond lung cancer. What, what are your thoughts on that? I can't wait for that day. And I'll tell you, uh, I had a patient that dro drove this home for me. I had a patient who was an MIT electrical engineer. And I was treating him for sarcoma with pre-op. And he's like, hey, how come you're going to give me 50? Why, why don't you give me 60 or 40? And I, I just didn't have a good answer for him. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating to think now that I've, I've sort of already seen the light by doing this work. I, I know for sure. And we all know that every patient responds differently, normal tissue wise and tumor wise. And so, you know, I, I can't wait for the day that we look back at, at this time and, and say, can you believe we used to? That, that said, I don't want to be a total naysayer. We do an amazing job in our field. But, but I, I think we need to get a little bit uncomfortable with how we do right now. But, and I think all change is preceded by discomfort. And so I, you know, I've gotten progressively more and more uncomfortable in my own clinical practice, the more analysis of these data that I do, and the more it becomes obvious to me that every patient does definitely need something different. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that day. Yeah, yeah. and, I, and I, I, for one, um, you know, will say that, um, you know, we we are very anal as a field for whatever we can see. And, you know, I trained as a resident where we would do a four field box for prostate cancer. And now we do these crazy arcs and we use um, two millimeter uh, margins and three millimeter margins, you know, that we would have never have dreamt of 20 years ago when we would do a four field box. 
um, you know, uh, where we essentially treated everything. And we thought it was a small field, a 10 by 10 field. And so, and then we realized when we then had the ability to, you know, everybody knew that a four by four, uh, that a 10 by 10 field was just over treating a lot of patients, but we couldn't see. And the moment we integrated 3D anatomy and CT into our treatment planning system, then all of a sudden we were like, oh my God, I'm treating the whole rectum. Oh my God, everybody's got the rectum in a different place. Oh my God, people have different size of prostates and so forth. Right. And then, you know, and then the field changed. And then today we're still, you know, very anal about a, you know, a millimeter, two millimeters, three millimeter margins. And I would argue that the error, you know, and the variability of the biological effect that we give with our uniform dose approach is way larger than any of these errors we have now in our field. So we have a much larger error in not understanding the effect of the dose that we give it to patients than the um, anatomical error, that geometric error we have corrected, you know, over the last um, uh, 20 years. It's just that we still don't see it because we haven't realized this. We still think populationally about dosing patients. And I think that, you know, the moment we start thinking at an at a individual level and we start thinking about this, we will realize, oh my God, you know, we have no idea what we're doing uh, with those. Yeah, it's kind of like, almost like in the head and neck world, you know, with HPV positive head and neck cancer, where there's all these trials trying to deescalate therapy and it's, it's not quite that simple. Mm-hmm. You know, we know there's something something there, but it's it's hard to really pin down who you can truly de-escalate their therapy for and who you can't. Have you guys looked at any uh, or done any with head and neck cancer or HPV? Uh, absolutely. With head and neck cancer in particular, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that maybe near the end when we talk about the new preprint. Okay. Um, yeah. I guess another quick question. So um, how closely are this, the radiosensitivity of the tumor and the patient related? Do you typically see them go together or – uh, are, is there no correlation much at all? You mean you mean normal tissue versus tumor? Yeah, yeah. We we don't know yet. Okay. We don't we don't know. It's it's absolutely something we need to work on, and that's a nice segue into the next sort of set of results conceptually in this JTO paper. If we want to get back to that, um, or we can talk whatever whatever you want. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Let me let me let me go on and tell you sort of the next conceptual leap in this paper, which is exactly the idea you just came up with was. How do you then consider um, toxicity effects? So, you know, this this the first leap of faith we made in this paper was the idea that we could tell you what an optimal guard dose would be, if you will. So Javier and I really think about measuring radiation in units of guard as the, as the next step forward. You know, what we measure that comes out of the machine is gray, but what we measure in patient effect is in guard. And that's the way we sort of think about it. And so if you then make the leap of faith that we can find a, t- a special, tar- a, you know, a specific target for guard for each patient, and let, let's just make up a number, let's say 40. Now, if you take a patient who was treated in the past and you look at them and you actually found that they got a guard of 50 delivered, that means they got too much radiation in theory. So what you can now do is say, okay, well, that, that uh, 10 extra units of guard, that translates into... 14 gray extra that they got. What you can now do is sort of back calculate how much extra harm that exposed them to. So if you had de-escalated that patient to the threshold dose that you think you need to optimize their outcome, how much toxicity could you have saved them? 
And you know, there's really good models for this. There's there's the England Journal articles um, published on breast cancer patients showing uh, toxicity to the heart and lungs. There's all kinds of good models out there that do it. And so what we did was we integrated this idea that you could calculate how much extra radiation each of these patients got. So remember in this paper, we found 75% got the wrong dose or outside of the range of what we considered to be right. Half of those were not enough and then therefore didn't get cured. And then half of those were too much and then mostly got cured, but but maybe some got injured. So now you can kind of do a back calculation with, with standard NTCP stuff to figure out how much extra toxicity you got. Um, obviously that toxicity math is not personalized. It's populational level still, because we don't have yet a genomic marker for that. However, if you go through and do all that math and you run a clinical trial in silico trial, so if you simulate a trial um, of 0617, the result from 0617 pops right out, which is to say that even though the dose escalation does cure some extra patients, and when I say some extra, I mean it cures those patients who needed something between 60 and 74 to get cured. It also exposes a whole bunch of extra patients who needed less than that to harm. And if you then do the, TC, the NTCP calculations, you end up with exactly the same result as 0617. Um, and to us, that was powerful, which is the idea that not only can our model tell us why a large-scale trial failed, um, it can, which is, I think, one of the leading hypotheses in the literature anyway, but this is now sort of a mechanistic and statistical reason why. But it also gives us some insight into ways forward to do better. Um, and you know, something that was really striking to me when we first started doing these math is sitting right in figure one in this paper, if your readers have it in front of them. But in panel, in figure one C, there's a histogram that shows um, the needed, our, our predicted needed dose in gray to cure patients. And what's wild to me is that if you look where 60 and 74 sit, there's hardly any patients in there. There's a big spike of patients who need 60 or less who are cured by 60. And then there's a, big, a smaller but real spike of patients who need 74 or more. But in that, it, between 60 and 74 is a sort of valley of very, very, very few patients who we would have predicted would benefit from that dose escalation at all. And so we feel like beforehand, and this actually goes back to our original paper, our original guard paper, we showed sort of the same concept. In that original paper, we showed that if you had stratified the women in the EURTC boost, no boost trial for breast, instead of needing something like thousands and thousands of women and two decades, you could have done the entire trial if you stratified it with genomics in a couple hundred women in a couple of years. And the same thing goes here, as we really feel like by taking these underlying sort of fundamental distributions of people and their genomics, you could really do a better job of rationally stratifying some of these trials to do them more quickly, cheaper, uh, and with fewer folks. And that's really sort of the the end of this paper, with, with the exception of a whole bunch of details that fall in place. But those are the two conceptual leaps. So, so I, I just want to emphasize a couple of things, uh, uh, Sam, that, uh, that Jake just mentioned. So the first thing is the fundamental concept that I think everybody uh, sort of needs to understand. Um, so when we talk about GARD, GARD is a model of biological effect. And this is something that um, there's a lot of our readers really don't get. Um, they, a lot of people think that GARD is a, is a model of outcome and GARD is really 
the um, is essentially the linear quadratic model is the equation of effect with a personalized alpha. So remember that RSI is developed based on survival fraction at two grade. So RSI is a genomic model of SF2. Um, and so we integrate that prediction of survival fraction at two grade to calculate an alpha for each patient. And then we assume a standard beta that was taken from the literature. And so then we actually have alpha beta ratios for all individual patients. But instead of assuming an alpha beta of 10, we actually have a calculated genomic alpha you know, for each patient. So GARD is essentially a step forward of the you know, effect equation that everybody learns in, uh, in radiation biology the first year of their residence, right? Uh, and it's a model biological effect. So the fundamental idea here is that we give a dose of radiation, we give a dose that we measure at the machine in gray in a very precise fashion, but then when this interacts with the patient, there is a biological effect that we all know about because we can see it. And for the longest time, we have been assuming that that biological effect is uniform. GARD provides the first quantification at an individual level of that biological effect. And fundamentally, what we're saying is that the biological effect of radiation as quantified by GARD actually tells you more about the potential outcome of the patient and the benefit of radiotherapy than the dose of radiotherapy than you're giving, and we're going to talk a little bit more, you know, about that as, as we go further. But the second thing that, you know, that Jake mentioned that I think is incredibly important is that the potential benefit of radiotherapy is not the same across your patients. And so, again, I started by saying the fundamental hypothesis that 0617 was testing was this idea that we uniformly benefit from radiation, the higher dose we give, the better. This is a dogma of radiation, right, uh, of radiation oncology. More dose is better because we're taught that there is a higher probability of radiation toxicity and, and DNA damage and so forth. That's, you know, the, the fundamental legacy uh, of our field. But here we're showing it's not. And, and critically, the reason 74, our model, proposes that the reason 74 grade did not work was that it was not the right dose. We failed to pick the right dose because actually the number of patients that benefit from that dose escalation is only about 17-18% uh, of the whole population. The majority of the patients either need their higher doses or lower doses, so therefore the 74 gray arm was actually less optimized than the 60 gray arm. And that's fundamentally why we think 0617 uh, failed. So I guess hypothetically, let's say I could, I could order guard for my patient. I would send off some of their tumor and I would get an, like a personalized um, ideal dose for this tumor that would, that would provide the optimal amount of tumor control. Um, and then I guess you could, you would theoretically, you could make decisions about treatment based off of that. Is that kind of how or where the direction this goes? That's a direction this goes, but we're, we're yeah. still one step away from that. And let me tell you why. Um, that kind of brings us to the new preprint we have out, um, which you can find on the med archive and it will be coming soon to a journal near you that's featured guard before. Um, and in this paper, what we do is we look at, uh, it's a pan cancer analysis. And so I'm going to be speak broadly, but we look at seven different disease sites, 1,600 patients, and show um, and show that GARD associates with survival and outcome 
P is 0.001 and 002, so tiny, tiny p-values. And radiation dose itself does not associate statistically with either outcome. And in this paper, we, we show something that the JTO paper was kind of, it's a little bit, it feels like it's a little um, tension, but it's not. What we showed in this paper is that increasing guard does increase outcomes for every patient with every, in, in every cancer. But what we don't know is for certain patients, it's going to be hard to escalate beyond certain numbers just because we all know that OARs are going to get in the way. But what we've done in the, in the larger pan cancer analysis has really been able to make a nomogram that shows how much escalation helps when it comes to absolute survival benefits. And so if you look in, in that newer paper, one of the figures shows you there that you basically have a, a chart with guard that shows you that every unit increase of dose of, of sorry, every unit increase of guard as the measure of radiation effect does give you a benefit. But for some patients, going up by one unit of guard might cost you three gray to get there. Whereas other patients, a unit increase of guard might be a, a quarter of a gray just because of the difference in sensitivity. And so really each patient's going to be harder or easier to dial up that guard unit. And, you know, if you need to get 10 extra points of guard to get 5% extra outcome, maybe that's, maybe that's easy in a sensitive patient because maybe that only means two extra gray of radiation, physical dose. And so your, you know, your dose escalation in that case will be pretty easy when it comes to the OARs. But in a really radiation-resistant patient, if you need to pump, bump it up that much, if you need to bump the guard that much to get this 5%, you need to go 20 or 30 extra gray, all of a sudden that 5% of benefit and outcome doesn't look as good as it would because you're now going to have huge issues with toxicity. And so really, we don't yet know what optimal numbers are for each disease site. But what we do know is if you take RSI, which is the genomic measure of sensitivity, we can then show you, a, and we actually have some software developed for this, which you can find in this JTO paper. There's a link to it in there where you can play around with it yourself. If you know a patient's RSI, we can give you a prediction of how their outcome will change as you change their dose. Because once we know RSI and dose, we can tell you guard. And once you know the guard, we can look at these large, this large pan cancer analysis and tell you how absolute outcome predictions would change. And so it really becomes a, a tool for the clinician. It's not like Oncotype, where you get a score back and you're like, well, you could give chemo, but it, it might not help that much. Or you could withhold chemo and it might not hurt that much. This is different. You, you get a genomic score and you get a report that you can use it in the form of an app. And you can really look what happens to the relative or to the, to the hazard ratio for your patient for survival and recurrence as you modulate the dose. And so what you can do is start having a discussion with your patient about that and say, hey, and, and also this, the individual plan matters. Because if you need, you know, to try to get a 5% increase in outcome, if it's going to cost you a huge risk for uh, OARs and a TCP, maybe it's not worth it. Jake, are you, cur it. Are, you, are you currently having those conversations with your we patients? Are, we are not having that yet because we're, uh, Javier, do you want to weigh in on the status of being able to order this? Uh, well, so no, we're not. Well, so I have sometimes those conversations because I, I get in situations just like Jake where the, the patient asks me, well, do I really need, you know, to come in next week or why do you give me treatments every day and not every other day? 
And um, and so I just go like, well, you know, we do it because that's the way we've always done it. But I don't have a very good reason. So, uh, but uh, but I, I, I it, so we're so we are in the process of you know uh, developing this commercially, and uh, there are still a few steps uh, you know before this is available commercially. But you know, we think that it, it might be commercially available uh, sometime next year, and we're working with a very large uh, commercial partner. Um, uh, to get this uh, into the market because we really think uh, that we, we, we need to start using this just like we started using IMRT, just like we started using 3D conformal radiotherapy, just like we started using um, uh, all these visualization techniques of anatomy that all of a sudden opened our eyes to, oh my God, I'm over treating so much normal tissue. And just like that led to the concept of volume volumetric dosing and its relationship to uh, normal tissue toxicity, then I think that what we're uh, providing here is the first opportunity to, you know, personalize the therapeutic ratio uh, for each individual patient. Uh, and I think the JTO paper shows that, you know, um, uh, this is, this, this equation or this, this ratio is very different uh, uh, for each patient. Uh, and that's something that we need to know. Um, and I think that it's, it's just the same way as anatomy is very different for each patient. So therefore you end up with a different geometric approach uh, to treatment. I think it's going to be the same thing. Uh, and we don't, we don't start, you know, uh, we don't start learning until we start doing it. Right. And I think that that's really, uh, for, for, from my perspective, uh, that, that's really the next step. Um, and so I, I also wanted to, to say that the paper that, um, uh, Jake is referring to that it's a preprint and coming to a really nice journal uh, pretty soon. Um, it's actually a sort of a uh, pan cancer analysis, but it's sort of like a meta analysis where we basically put in all the publicly available data sets that had enough information to calculate RSI, um, GARD, and that had clinical outcome. Uh, and the key thing about this is that GARD is actually significant as a continuous, you know, um, uh, uh, biomarker, right? So it's a, it's a continuous variable analysis. There is no cut point. So essentially that is, that, that is huge because um, it's essentially telling you that each unit of guard is important and it's predicting for overall survival, or I should say it's associated with overall survival um, and recurrence and not just local control, but recurrence, uh, which I think it's another issue that I've struggled a lot within our field in that we always think uh, as the effect of radiotherapy just in the local area. And we have spent, you know, years and years optimizing radiation therapy based on local control measures. And we forget that there is an impact, you know, in the survival of patients, you know, that is provided by our therapy. It's just that we very often cannot measure it when we are doing populational-based studies. So, and, and, and the fact that that this signal is actually detecting overall survival differences suggests that maybe there is an opportunity that by the optimization uh, of biological approaches to dosing that we may actually impact the survival of patients. So I think that's not a small thing. If you think about the number of patients that are treated with radiation uh, on, a, on, a, on a yearly basis uh, in the United States. And, and I think that it's, a, it's an important responsibility uh, for our field to start uh, looking at um, at these approaches, I think. Yeah. And I, and I guess to me, kind of looking at it from the clinician standpoint, I mean, I could really see this when you're like a pancreatic cancer, for instance, you're, you have very limiting 
uh, organs at risk adjacent to your tumor. And we've seen a lot of interesting data about uh, perhaps there is a, a room we can go in local control with dose escalation, but it's just so limited. But if you could get, you know, if you had a guard and it could tell you that, hey, if you could just get to 60 gray, this patient could have really good control versus, hey, it's going to take 90 gray um, to control this tumor. It could really help you make better decisions about uh, when and how to use radiation. Exactly. I, I love, I love that example. It's, it's really true. And, you know, if, if, if so, some of these patients, an extra two, three, two or three, four gray could get you a lot. And, and some of them, it's not going to get you much at all. And, and you can, you can either try other things, try, you know, try clinical trials or, or try different, different options, maybe hyperfrac or, or protons or something else. Right. But, but I think that this is really an opportunity for us to, to see things we haven't seen before. And I, I want, I love Javier's example of the CAT scanner. You know, the minute you can see 3D anatomy, your whole world changes. Of course, you're not going to use a four-field box anymore for a prostate. And I feel like now that I've seen this data and I've been sitting and sitting with this data for years now, it's the same way. Uh, it, it seems now that I can see the differences, it's obvious why we get what we get when we treat the same way every time. Yeah. Now, now that you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I know that um, I know that we're we're kind of running short on time, and I want to be respectful of your time for sure. Um, and so we can we can sort of move towards a close. I can't I can't thank you all enough for taking the time out of I know your your busy day to to join us and help our our listeners understand a little bit more about um, the work you've done, the potential implications that that work has moving forward. Um, and we're, we're just very excited about, uh, what the future holds. Um, I will end on one, uh, side note question. If you had not gone into medicine, what do you think you all would have done? Javier? Yeah, that's an easy question for me. I would have been a musician for sure, you know, uh, uh, and, and maybe I would be a side economist because like you've seen, I like models and math, uh, but definitely a musician. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I have a different answer. My my children, my son might be a musician, but I have, I, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Um, but bef- before I got, I was in the Navy before I went to medical school, and the year I got out of the Navy, I applied to physics PhD programs and MD programs, and um, I chose MD. And sometimes I look back and and wonder. And so I would have been a physicist. Well, that's that's incredible, and certainly um, seems to fit perfectly with what we've been talking about, based on your your interest there. But uh, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, I hope that uh, you have a great rest of your day, and can't wait to see what else you guys produce in the future. I can't wait to talk to you again about our next paper. <laughs> perfect, perfect. I actually, have a lot of fun talking about this. So anytime, you know, we had a lot of fun today. Awesome. Awesome. You guys were great, great guests. And uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Quadcast. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time. Let's change the world. Love it. See ya. This concludes today's episode of the Quad Shot. If you like what you've heard, please consider giving us a five-star rating and subscribing to our podcast. Also, check out our website at www.quadshotnews.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll catch you next time.